Welcome to the Heart of the Father podcast. We're glad you're here and able to listen in. We're praying the Lord will speak to your heart through this message and that you be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. I'm really excited about what's happening Wednesday nights. Our heart as leadership in this church is to build a culture where every person can thrive in their relationship with God. That's what we want. We want a culture where everybody can thrive. And conflict, as you know, is unavoidable. Interpersonal conflict, if you've ever been involved in the church in your whole life, you'll know that there is conflict. And there are ways to navigate that conflict which are healthy and actually end up building relationships stronger rather than blowing it up and having another notch on the belt for church hurt. Okay, we don't, we don't want that. We want everyone to navigate well. And so um, Brendan's done a great job, honestly, in my view, of in the course. And so I encourage you guys to come on Wednesday nights. There's four more left. And the uh, first one is on available in audio, right? So do that. And what I want to speak about today is kind of dovetailing on that. It's about building a culture in our body that is going to be healthy for God to get what he wants, for him to be able to do what he wants in our midst. How many want the Lord to do everything that he wants in our midst? You, you want that? Okay. I want that too. There are ways that we can partner with him in creating an atmosphere where he loves to pour out his grace and his presence to draw near. There's a story in Matthew chapter 18. It's one of those stories that we've heard a lot, and so we kind of dismiss it. It doesn't impact us with the power that's in it so much in the Gospels to me. I get mind blown all the time. I'm like, Lord, you said that? It's amazing to me. So here's what happened in the beginning of Matthew 18, and you'll recognize the story. The disciples come to Jesus, and they're arguing among themselves, obviously, who's the greatest in the kingdom of God, right? You've seen this little vignette in a few different places in the Gospels. They're coming to Jesus, and they're standing there, and they said, Lord, can you imagine having the gall to come up to Jesus and say this? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? And they're all. And Jesus brings a little child. He says, he brings a little child, and he stands him there in the midst. And he says, unless you turn, change gears, shift your direction from where you're at right now, unless you shift and become like this child, humble, who when I waved him to come, he, he just came right over just looking at me. If you don't change and become like that, not only are you not going to be the greatest in the kingdom, you are not going to get in at all. Jesus said it to his disciples, you will never get into the kingdom of God if you don't turn and become like this little child. That's pretty striking, isn't it? There's a spirit of humility that we walk in towards Jesus and towards others that is not optional, it's not an upgrade, it is essential to actually getting into the kingdom and certainly to having the Lord come and have his way. I want to speak about rediscovering biblical humility today because I feel like in our culture and even our church culture we've lost it, we've become a culture of celebrities, of idols, of amazingly gifted and we've lost sight of what biblical Humility is, and so I want to go after that. Part of our struggle, and I know it's mine and I know it's yours, because I've grown up with it my whole life, and I want to read this so that I don't misspeak in what I'm saying, because I'll have a conversation with Doc Kerndon afterwards if I misspeak. Um, part of our struggle with loving and embracing biblical humility is that we have been brainwashed with the self esteem religion. We have been told lies with all of the best intentions. The key to a happy and productive life, we have been told, is to feel really good about ourselves. The goal of self-esteem is to feel good about ourselves by focusing 
on ourselves. Is that true? So my mother was an elementary school teacher in California before I was born. By the time I was born, she was home taking care of my two brothers and me. But she was a school in California, a school teacher. And she was definitely completely um, filled with this whole philosophy of self-esteem. And she poured it into us every day. And, and, and listen, parents, I'm not saying you should tell your kids that they're worthless. and they're, It's not that. That's not where we're going with this. But all I want to say is I, I want to try to point out that the self-esteem emphasis has not produced what they said it would. I read an article recently by a psychologist named Lauren Statler, or Slater, sorry, in the New York Times magazine. So it wasn't a homeschool journal. It, it wasn't a conservative paper. She's a psychologist in New York City. And she wrote an article entitled, The Trouble with Self-Esteem. And I want to just read you a paragraph from that article because it's very revealing. She's a psychologist now, and they've been trained in this as being the thing that's going to change culture. Here's what she said. It has not been much disputed until recently that high self-esteem, defined quite simply as liking yourself a lot, holding a positive opinion of your actions and capacities, is essential to well-being and that its opposite is responsible for crime and substance abuse and prostitution and murder and rape and even terrorism. Based on our beliefs, we have created self-esteem programs in schools in which the main objective is, as one psychotherapist has described it, who was a big cheerleader for it, to dole out huge heapings of praise regardless of actual accomplishments. This is the last sentence in the paragraph. It didn't work. It didn't work. We live in a culture that I call as a culture of soft narcissism. We don't love the guy who gets up on stage and is always walking around with his phone. Hey! So full of himself that we're like, dude, shut up and sit down. We don't like that. We don't like the person who's up there telling us how great they are every second and every other word is I or me and what I did and well, who I am. We don't like that. But we're okay with the soft narcissism of it's really all about me and it's about how I feel. And, and, I, and, and, and I just need you to keep telling me how great I am. I remember over and over again. And my mother, bless her heart, she's trying. I love her. She would tell us over and over again, you, you boys are smart. You can do whatever you want in life. You can be successful in any business that you choose to do. Whatever you choose to do, you can do that. I tried it out in business, and I sucked at it. And I said, Mama, you lied to me. You told me I could be the president of the United States. That's a flat-out lie. I can't even... Make enough money to support my family. Good grief. Oxford Dictionary definition of narcissism. Excessive interest in or admiration of one's self. Selfishness involving a sense of entitlement, lack of empathy, and need for admiration. There's a lot of need for admiration in our culture. And here's what in her article she found out and, and she wrote about. There have been multiple studies fairly recently that indicated that the self-esteem thing actually doesn't work. We actually didn't cure crime. We didn't cure prostitution. We didn't cure delinquency. We didn't cure these things by telling students how great they were for doing nothing. We didn't fix it. Because the problem is much deeper. It's a heart issue that has to be shifted. It's not just an external stimulus issue. If you tell me the right words, then all of a sudden I'm going to be a totally different person. What it has served to do is to create a culture of entitlement. Now you didn't tell me enough. Tell me how great I am with everything that I do. 
I mowed the grass. How come I don't get extravagant praise for that? Oh, you're such a stinking hard worker. I know this is awkward. I want us to wake up, though, to the air that we breathe and to get a biblical picture because the biblical picture is much different than this. The biblical picture is not to negatively focus on self. Oh, you stupid. No, it's not that. It's to turn away from yourself and turn to Christ as your identity. Here's a great definition of humility from Andrew Murray. I'm going to read this. This this is beautiful. Humility is the displacement of self by the enthronement of God. Instead of going around all the time saying, how do I feel? How do I feel? How do I feel today? I don't know. I just don't feel good today. Tell me something good about myself. What's great about me? Please tell me. I just don't feel good today. In some ways, we're all victims of this. And we think it's legit to turn inwardly and to expect people to fix us. And they can't. And so this obscures our view of what biblical humility is all about. I want to read you. I do not believe, and I'm a student of the Bible. You can correct me if you have passages that I haven't seen. I have diligently searched Scripture, and I cannot find one place in Scripture anywhere that would indicate that the main problem or a problem of man is that he doesn't esteem himself high enough. I can't find one. I can't find a single one. But I can find several, and I'm going to give you two of the most pungent ones that indicate just the opposite, that man's problem is that he esteems himself way too high. That's at the root of his problem. Here's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. We're difficult, vicious, really vicious times. Why is that? Verse 2. Notice, notice at the top of the list. For men will be... Oh, that's great. There won't be any crime. Everything's going to be great. If men are lovers of themselves, everything's going to be good, right? No. In Scripture, love... This is the only time it's ever used in Scripture, this phrase, this word, loving yourself... And it's at the list of horrible culture and soul-destroying things. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Notice how there's several different loves in here. And all of these loves that are listed here actually become substitutes for loving God. At the top of the list, lovers of selves, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So you have lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, and those loves choke out the love for God and displace it. Love for self, I want to tell you, if that becomes a focus of our life, chokes out and displaces love for God. Here's another one that you'll be familiar with. How many are doing okay? Romans 12, verse 3, Paul says, through the grace that's been given to me as an apostle, I say to every one among you, catch that phrase, every one among you. This is Romans 12, 3, if you want to look it up and check me. I say to you, by the Spirit of God and the grace that God has given to me as an apostle and as a scripture writer, I'm saying to every person in the church at Rome and by extension to every Christian who ever lives, to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself then he ought to think, really? I thought the problem was that we all thought too lowly of ourselves. No, that the real problem is that we think of ourselves way too much. And our identity is not what's inside this skin. 
It's the spirit of the living God who lives inside of us. Selah. To everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself. So that must apply to everyone among you, do you think? Everyone among you, the, the problem is that you think too highly of yourself, that I think too highly of myself. That's the problem. But to think with sober judgment. That word sober judgment is the word for, or sound judgment here, is the word for sanity. It is the word that's used when Jesus cast legion out. Remember when Jesus went across the pond? And there was a man who was hiding in the tombs, running around naked, cutting himself, and they could chain him, and he'd break the chains, and he ran to Jesus, and he fell down, and Jesus said, what's your name? And he said, Legion, for we're many, and he said, you're out of here. And when that man was delivered from a legion of demons, he sat there, and the townspeople came, and they were amazed because he was sitting there clothed and in his right mind. Same exact Greek word as sound judgment. What that tells me is that pride is insanity. And being sane is actually thinking with humility. How you all feeling? I want you to think. My goal always in preaching and teaching is not to get you to agree with my point of view but it's to make you and to force you to think and wrestle through yourself. If you have biblical texts that show that low self-esteem is an issue with mankind that God wants to deal with, please bring them to me. I want to see them. I have never found them in my years of studying Scripture. We can talk about them. Andrew Murray's definition, which I never got to, I got the first part. Humility is the displacement of self by enthronement of God. Humility is the only soil in which the graces root. The lack of humility is the sufficient explanation of every defect and failure. Humility is not so much a grace or virtue along with others. It is the root of all because it alone takes the right attitude before God and allows him as God to do all and to be all. Paul got this, that it wasn't about him fixing his own view of himself. He said, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer... If it's no longer I who live, then I don't have to worry about trying to fix my image of myself, right? I, 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 all of the navel-gazing that happens in mirrors doesn't get us anywhere. It's not the biblical way. The way that grace comes into our life to change us is God gives grace to the... God gives grace to the humble... So we need to find out what humility is because it's a magnet for grace. And what is grace? It's God's active working by his spirit in us that changes us. It's what transformed us from sinners into saints. It's what changed us from the defiled, crooked people that we were. And I was at the top of that list. Into what God is making us now. He, he really can take the pretzel and untwist it. I don't know how he does it. It's amazing. That's grace. That's what attracts God's grace and opens the door to his grace is when we walk before him humbly. If we just had that alone, wouldn't it be worth finding out what does this look like? What does it look like to walk in humility before the Lord? It's not beating yourself up and telling yourself how bad you are. It's not that. C.S. Lewis, great, great quote, very famous Humility is not so much thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's turning away. Humility is the displacement of self by the enthronement of God. 
Now God is your obsession. Now Jesus Christ within. Christ in you, the hope of glory, now becomes your obsession. Your connection with the Spirit of the living God through Christ Jesus becomes our obsession. And as we continue to move in that way, we don't have to walk through life crippled by our own sense of self-worth. Because who do you know? Is it not rare to find somebody who would say that their self-image is, is really stellar and really great, that they feel great about themselves. I know that's not true. You know that's not true because you look in the mirror and you live inside of your skin. This, they took the top 10 supermodels in the world who had the perfect face and the perfect shape and asked them what things that they would like to change about themselves, and they all had a list this long. Here's the thing, when our focus is on ourself, it's never enough. It will never be enough. There'll never be enough praise. There'll never be enough affirmation. There'll never be enough nice things said about you. It only has a, just a really short lifespan of booing you up, right? Y'all are really quiet. So I want to just give you a flavor for five aspects of biblical humility, and I'm going to put scripture um, with each one of them, and there's many scriptures that you could put with each of these points. This is not everything the Bible says about humility by any means, but these points that I'm going to bring out have to do with our community and humility in our community and how we walk before the Lord. So first point, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to read verses 26 to 31. I'm going to read the verse in verses, and then I'm going to give you the point, and we're going to scoot right through this, Lord willing. Verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 1, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. He has to keep going on, right? Foolish, weak, and now the base things. The base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no, listen, here's the point. So that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Verse 31, he's going to emphasize it again. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in, boast in, not in the mirror, not even in what God's doing in, in us. There's, there's a place to be thankful for that. Yes, hallelujah. But we don't dwell there. Focusing on ourselves does not fix ourselves. Focusing on Jesus, we all with unveiled face behold, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. And when we do that, we're what? What are we? Come on, 2 Corinthians 3.18, Bible scholars. We are being transformed into the same image when we gaze on not ourselves in the mirror, but when we gaze on him. Come on, you guys. That deserves a hallelujah right there. Come on. Don't make me do this. All right. Here's point number one. Five aspects. I just read the scripture. When we walk in humility before the Lord, we feel the wonder of grace that we did not deserve to be chosen by God. Y'all, I'm telling you, this is so freeing. To just admit and say it out loud, I deserve absolutely nothing from God. Nothing at all. Zero. Donna. Except hell. And he didn't give me what I deserve, thank God. It's so freeing. God's not in debt to us because we're awesome people. He rescued us as the scum of the earth. And said, you know what? I'm going to use this pond scum... And y'all go, I don't like that. Get the point. I'm going to use this weak, base, foolish, take the biblical words, so that I can show the devil and all of the principalities and powers how strong I am. I'm going to take this whole bunch of losers 
That's including me. And I'm going to change them into the image of my son and actually use them to bring my purposes. And guess who's going to get the glory? God's going to get the glory because he's the only one who deserves the glory because he did everything from start to finish. That's the beauty of salvation. We get to change. He gets the glory. It's the beauty of grace. All right, flip over to chapter 4, 1 Corinthians, verse 6 and 7. Love this, these verses, so powerful and so helpful. Now, these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. You see what's happening? They're boasting in men. Oh, Paul's my guy. Apollos, he's no good. Oh, Cephas, he's my guy. What do you mean Cephas was right there when Jesus was crucified? What? Boasting in men, Paul said, is, is not only foolish, it's, it's not allowed in the kingdom. That's why every crown in the throne room in heaven, what happens to it? When, when we see Jesus for who he is and the fact that he did everything from start to finish, like you, you're not going to keep a crown on your head. In his graciousness, he rewards what he did. That's really true. But our response is going to be, no, you deserve this. Get that, get that off my head. Verse 7, for who regards you as superior? See, the Corinthians, even though they were the most spirit-filled church, Paul said they came behind in no good gift. They were the revival hub, baby. They had all the powerful speakers there. But they were also the most proud and arrogant. And Paul's calling him on it. Here's the question. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you had not received it? I get amazed sometimes at the beautiful people who kind of sometimes strut. I'm not talking about you if you think that's you. <laughs> they're handsome or they're really beautiful. They're Barbie and Ken. And I'm like... But they sort of had an air like they made themselves that way. You didn't make yourself nothing. That was the genetic dice roll. That was God. You didn't make yourself nothing. You didn't make yourself pretty. You didn't make yourself thin or muscular. You didn't do that. I mean, you might have worked out, but. Why do we boast about that? These, these models, because of the way they look, we're going to pay them multi-millions of dollars. I mean, whatever. But like. You're going to take credit for that? You didn't do that. And that's Paul's point here. You spiritual ones, you've got all this fire and all this spiritual stuff. He goes, where did you get that from? Oh, we made that. No, we, we, we made that. We stirred that. No, you didn't do nothing. If anything, here's, here's point number two. We own, humble people, we own that whatever is good in us is a gift from God so we don't take credit for it. How's that fly? We say, thank God. He did this. Whatever's good in me. Y'all, we live in a soft, narcissistic culture. So that allows us to take credit for something because it makes us feel better. Let's give God glory. Anything that's good in us, God has put there for his own glory and purposes. And we should say, this is from the Lord. Give glory to God. Give honor to the Lord. He's the one who did this. What do you have that you have not received as a gift is the question that echoes. And the answer is nothing. So why do you boast? Asked the Holy Spirit. Nope. I shouldn't be. Luke chapter 17. Next point. Y'all, we're making good time through this. Luke 17, verse 7. I love this. This may be the most under-read and under-preached on parable in all of the Gospels. That's why I want to read it. Luke 17, verse 7. Jesus speaking to his disciples. Which of you... 
Having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat, you precious little darling. But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? You look like a toad in a hailstorm. So you too, when you do all the things which were commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Okay, let, let's do this. Jesus told us to say this, right? Come on, y'all. Jesus told us to say this. Did he not? All right, let's say it then. Say it out loud with me. We are unworthy slaves. Okay, that's not enough. No, you guys, no, only the brave ones are doing it. Come on. Everybody say, Jesus told you to say it. We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Now, does that feel better? Here's the point. I believe this is the main point. Just pleasing Jesus is enough reward for our service. Just pleasing Jesus is enough reward. We don't have to have people gather around saying how great we are because the reality is we're not. Whatever we have, we received it as a gift. So, yes, is Jesus gracious? Yes, is he going to repay the things that we did? Yes, when he comes back, he said, in chapter 12 of Luke, he said, when the master comes, if he finds you ready doing the things that he told you to do, he's going to sit down himself and gird his loins and prepare a meal for you. That's a gracious God. But he didn't say he would do that in this life. He didn't say that every little thing that you did, you were just going to get lavished with praise of how great you were because it's not about you. And it's not about me. It's about him. He is the center. He is the king. He is the goal. He is the one that we live to bring glory to. Christianity has become a therapeutic thing in, tied with the self-esteem. It really has. And that's not what it is. So the question is, can we serve him without the applause, without the thanks, without the extra bonuses? Can we serve him that way and be happy just that he owns us and that he's getting what he wants and that he's pleased. That's, that's a question for us to ask. Are we good with having Jesus being pleased as our reward or not? Or we demand more from him? No, Lord, forget it then. I'm not doing it. No, I'm not doing it then. Forget it. He purchased us with his blood. He owns us, right? Throughout Scripture, all the way to the very end of the book of Revelation, Jesus said that he draws his slaves, the word doulos, it means slave, it does not mean servant, it means slave. He calls his slaves to come into the new Jerusalem. We belong to him. He's not a cruel taskmaster, but he does own us. So he has the right to tell us what he wants us to do. And we say, yes, sir. This message was not designed to make anybody feel good. But to help to shake us out of the thing that keeps us babies. Here's a good quote by John Piper, whom I love. Humility is the disposition of the heart to be pleased with the infinite superiority of Christ over ourselves in every way. We should be infinitely pleased that Jesus is so much greater than us and so much more worthy and more deserving than we are in every way. We should be pleased with that. Because we're marveling at the Son of God for who He really is. This is what happens in heaven. Nobody in the throne room has mirrors. Nobody in the throne room takes selfies. Nobody. 
Because every ounce of attention and all of the air is sucked out of the room and pulled towards the lamb. He is so compelling. He is so worthy. He is so glorious. Nobody sits there and thinks about themselves in that setting. And the problem is we do too much think about ourselves instead of turning our gaze to him. That's the transforming gaze. The gaze in the mirror is not transforming. How many have learned that? How many have learned that? It's not transforming. Even if you fix the hair, even if you do the makeup, it's not transforming because you know what's underneath it. Wow. So number three, just pleasing Jesus is enough reward for our service. That's, that's, that's powerful and beautiful. Number four, Matthew chapter 20. We're going to read 25 to 27. You're familiar with these scriptures, I'm sure, many of you. Matthew 20, verse 25 to 27. But Jesus called out to them and said, his disciples, that is, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercised authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your Did you see the word must? Shall be your servant, must be your servant. This is imperative. If we're going to be great in the kingdom, we do it by serving. This is number four in the five aspects of biblical humility. We believe when we walk humbly before the Lord, we believe that being a servant or a slave for God's people is Jesus' definition of greatness. We believe that. So the question is, whose greatness are we seeking? The world's, our own, or Jesus's? And then Philippians chapter 2, you know I would have to go there. The perfect example of the Son of God. Philippians Two, we're going to read verses 3 through 8. Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness. So we have an altar call right there. Do nothing from selfishness, altar call, or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. And what Paul's getting at in this whole Philippians passage, and he says it multiple times, I think 10 times in the book of Philippians, is that he's talking about our mind, which is our mindset, the way that we think. He's trying to get us to think differently, not like a worldly person, but think like Jesus thinks. Have this mind in you, this attitude, this mindset that was in Jesus himself. Let us... Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's a, that's a toughie. That's a toughie. We should be honest where we are on the scale of that actually happening in our lives where we view others as being more important than ourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude, keep thinking this among you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Not only was Jesus not trying to make himself something that he wasn't by puffing up his image, he was this, but he actually laid down his privileges and his personal rights. Personal rights have become a God in our culture, would you agree with me? Oh, yeah. If you say not, I'm going to sue you right now. I'll call Morgan and Morgan. It's become an idol. And it's, it's predicated on our sense of entitlement. We deserve. We deserve. 
and tell yourself, disciple of Jesus, we deserve nothing. He gave his grace freely. This is so freeing. Although he existed in the form of God, verse 6, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He wasn't insisting on his own rights and his own ways. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a doulos, which is a slave, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. How did he humble himself? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. This is the most grueling, horrific death that was known in the world then. He chose obedience to the Father doing that for the sake of others, counting us more important than himself to die for us and to take our punishment. For this reason... God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth or under the earth. The reward is coming. But are you okay with not getting it until you leave your body? That's the question. The reward is sure and certain, and God is a rewarder, but are you okay with not receiving it and not having the applause of men until you have his applause. The true test of servanthood is whether we still serve when no one sees and applauds. Who are we doing it for? This is the spirit of Jesus. There's at least three times in the Gospels where Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be based. Whoever humbles himself will be, will be, be exalted. Are we okay with being believers who walk humbly with their God? Are we okay with being believers who live in a spirit of humility in our community with each other. Like how different would things be if we actually did these verses? How, how different would things be if we counted others as more important than ourselves? If we changed our focus from being in the mirror to being on Jesus himself? And we let him shape the way that we walked and lived our lives. If we were really okay with doing service for him because it pleased him even if nobody else sees. That's what walking humbly before the Lord means. That's part of it. That's part of it. What if we had a people who walked in humility before the Lord? And in response to that, he poured out his grace in such great effusion and measure that it swept through this house and this city like a tidal wave. He said he gives grace to the... It says in the book of Acts chapter 9, great grace was upon them. Why do you think? Because they were walking in the fear of the Lord, which is our Godward way of walking humble before him. But they were also walking in true love and humility towards one another. That's why they were selling all their stuff and giving it to each other. That's called fellowship in the second chapter of Acts. That's koinonia. It really is. It's a miracle in the heart. The Lord's calling us to walk as a humble people. So can I encourage you? To turn away from yourself as fixing yourself? Can I encourage you to stop listening to yourself and taking your pulse all the time and start turning your eyes to Jesus and what he said and what he's doing in us? I read a book by Martin Lloyd-Jones called, Lloyd called Spiritual Depression. 
And it's not about how to get in it, it's how to get out of it. I was honestly in one of the hardest places in my life, and I, I read that. I was really struggling. The only time in my life since I was born where I was struggling with depression because a whole series of things came down and um, was very discouraged. And my eyes got off of the one that I needed to have them on. But thank God for my wife. I'm serious. She said, no, baby, we're going to pray. We're going to pray. We're going to pray. We're going to pray. Let's pray. Let's go to God. Let's go. We're going to pray. And I'm like, let's pray. But I thank God. Thank God. But in that book I read, one of the things that he said in there that stuck to me and struck me was, has it ever occurred to you that when you are depressed, discouraged, and self-focused, that you are spending too much time listening to yourself and not enough time talking to yourself. How am I feeling? Not good. How are you feeling? Not good. How are you doing? Not, not good. No, you tell yourself, I am the redeemed of the Lord. He chose me out of the scum pit of the world and redeemed me for his glory. He put his spirit inside of me. He said that who believes in him will never perish but have everlasting life. He said that I will fill you with my spirit and I'll breathe my breath inside of you and I will turn your life around and I'll use you for my glory in this world and you're going to stand with me. And those who overcome, I'm going to make a pillar in the temple of my God and they'll never leave or go out. What can that possibly mean? You're going to be planted in closest proximity to the Son of God forever. But I don't feel good. Shut up. <laughs> Turn your eyes to the truth and start talking to yourself. You can't rely upon other people to talk to you because a lot of times they're going to commiserate with you. Oh, you poor little darling. I don't like. Okay, there may, there's a place for empathy, and I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying we don't encourage. We do. Y'all, I'm not telling the whole story today, but I'm just trying to make a point to get us to shift. Tell yourself the truth. Or ask your wife to tell you the truth. She'll do it. <laughs> Let's turn our eyes to Jesus. Let's be that people who are grace magnets. Come on, y'all. Become a grace magnet. Become a grace magnet. Walk before the Lord in such a way that he just want to go, hold still. Boom. And everybody around you is going to get blessed because you're going to be a grace magnet. He's going to pour his grace upon you. Come on. Let's be that. Let's be that people who walk humbly before God and humbly with each other. We can't fix ourselves. Like, just give that up. You, you, you're no good at it. You're no good at being the Holy Spirit in other people's lives, and you're no good at being the Holy Spirit in your own life either. Just give, the, give that job up. You're not good at it. God is awesome. God has said, here's one of the verses that I tell myself all the time, Romans 8, 32. If God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Dude, that, that, that cures everything in your life right there. God's at work, and he's pouring out good things because he didn't spare the biggest, which was his own son. If he didn't spare him, how, if he didn't spare the million-dollar drive, how is he going to spare giving you the dollar for a Coke? But we fixate on the dollar for the Coke, and he's going, here's Fort Knox. Forget the stupid dollar. Come in here and look at this gold. That's what we have as our inheritance in Christ. He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's not in the mirror. He didn't bless us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in the mirror. Only in Christ Jesus. Come on. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to get on a roll. I better stop. I better stop. Come on. Stand up with me and let's pray. Let's pray. Let's commit ourselves to being a people who walk humbly before the Lord and humbly with each other. 
Father, I thank you for these men and women and children in this room. Thank you for those watching on the internet. Thank you for your spirit moving and working and stirring in our hearts, causing us to be those living stones that are fitted together, causing us to walk before you with a humble spirit to where you are chasing us down with your grace. Surely goodness and mercy, there's your grace, will follow me all the days of my life. I had a friend who used to say, the Lord will chase you down and kiss you right on the mouth. I found that to be true. But he usually doesn't come in when you're at the mirror. Just saying, turn your gaze. Father, help us to be that people. Help us to walk with a humble spirit, not self-absorbed, but self-releasing to you. That you might be our all in all. That you might be our sufficiency. That you might have the center place and be the blazing fire at the center of our soul. I pray that you bless my brothers and sisters in this place, Father, with encouragement, with strength, with the drawing of your spirit. Would you draw every heart close to yourself? Those who are walking through difficult times right now, Lord, I pray that you would turn their eyes away from themselves and away from their pain, away from the, the trouble and turn their eyes to you. And that they would see the glorious Son of God who has overcome way more than we'll ever deal with. And he lives inside. So Lord, help us to be that people. I pray that this place would be a magnet for your grace. That you would be so pleased with those who are walking before you with a humble spirit. Those who are delighting in you most of all. Those who have made you their treasure. That you would come with just a magnificent amount of your grace. And that you would pour out your spirit in greater measure than ever before. I thank you that you're working and doing these things. In Jesus' mighty name. Everybody said amen. Amen. Bless you all. I love you. Have a great day. We hope this message has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to join us on a Sunday morning or other weekly gathering, know that you're more than welcome. And if you'd like other resources on or about this ministry, or for any deeper questions you may have, be sure to visit our website at hotfmlakeland.com.